Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And I'm so glad you can join us. It's been almost a full year since Brussels Sprouts last focus on Belarus. And in that past year, President Lukashenko has, su- has sustained his brutal crackdown on civil society. In his effort to solidify his grip over the country, he sought closer relations with Russia, raising concerns among some observers that the two countries may even be on a path toward a full-blown merger. This closer cooperation has occurred both in the economic domain where Russia provides Belarus with cheap natural gas and hundreds of millions of dollars in loans, as well as the military domain, which is highlighted by the ongoing Zapad military exercises where Russia and Belarus are exercising together, and Belarus's announced plan to buy a billion dollars worth of weapons from Russia by 2025, which includes the possible acquisition of the S-400 air defense system. Separately, the Lukashenko regime has sparked amplified tensions with the European Union, Um, especially in his efforts to send migrants across its borders with Poland and Lithuania. So today we're really excited to welcome both David Kramer and Brian Whitmore to the podcast to discuss all of this and much more on Belarus. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Um, By brief introduction, uh, Brian Whitmore is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center an assistant professor of practice at the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies and host of the awesome Power Verti- the Power Vertical podcast, which I also listen to. So if you haven't listened to it, check it out. Um, and David is senior fellow at the Vaclav Havel Program for Human Rights and Diplomacy and director for European and Eurasia Studies at Florida, Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. David, that's a mouthful. Um, But he previously served as president of Freedom House and worked at the McCain Institute and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. So, all right, two um, really um, esteemed Belarus experts. And so let's maybe catch Brussels Sprouts listeners up uh, about what's happened in the last year since we last focused on it. So maybe you can kind of just rewind time a little bit, take us back to that fraudulent presidential election in August, 2020, which is what precipitated all of this crackdown by the Lukashenko regime. Kind of what's been happening since that time? Kind of get, you know, how would you characterize what's been going on inside Belarus over that period? And Brian, maybe we can start with you. Sure, um, and thank thank you for the kind words about my podcast, Andrea. It's an honor to be on 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 yours. I mean, what I see, in addition to the brutal crackdown, um, which which merits little elaboration, the most disturbing thing I see happening right now is what I call Russia's soft annexation of Belarus. Um, and this is not going to be some spectacular shock and awe spectacle like the 2008 invasion of Georgia or the or the or the annexation of Crimea. Instead, we should be prepared for a slow, stealthy, methodical operation that will be over before most people who aren't paying attention even know it's really happening. It'll be an, an annexation that's effectively hiding in plain sight. I mean, think of the old metaphor of the frog boiling in water. Right. What we've had over the past year, due to Lukashenko's uh, isolation and vulnerability as a reason that resulted from his brutal crackdown, is we have Russia expanding its military, its economic, and its political footprints in Belarus. 
militarily. Yeah, right now we're in the middle of the Zapit exercises, right? Right now we're in the middle of those, but those aren't the only exercises that happened this year. This year, in fact, Russia and Belarus had a record number of bilateral military exercises, the result of which is there is a permanent, there's a constant troop presence due to the rotations. So you have basically already a de facto Russian permanent troop presence in Belarus due to the rotations. That's number one. Number two, this last week, the first troops arrived for this so-called new military training facility in Karodna, um, which is near the Belar near the, uh, the 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 border with Poland and Lithuania. Um, did you want to jump in, Jim? Oh, um, uh, um, you, so, so you have this base that is going to be on, on the Western frontier and Lukashenko is about to acquiesce on his, in his over, uh, in, to Russia's desire to build an air base in Eastern Belarus. So you have this expanding military presence, um, expanding military footprint. Moreover, you have an expanding economic footprint. Um, German Greff and Sperbank are, are investing massively in real estate. The new Russian ambassador, Yevgeny Lukyanov, is an ex-KGB guy who focused on money laundering and financial flows and a former bank executive at Dresdner Bank and VTB. And he is there as Russian oligarchs are, are attempting to take over the crown jewels of the, Russia, of the Belarusian economy, including Belarus Scali. So all of these things taken together means to me what's happened in the past year is Belarus went even further under Russia's thumb, and that is a serious security threat. I consider it the most, the, the biggest qualitative change in the security equation on NATO's eastern flank since the Russian annexation of Crimea and invasion of, of, of the Donbass. Okay, awesome. We're definitely going to pull on a bunch of threads that you just put out there um, and talk a lot more about that Russia-Belarus relationship. David, can you talk to us a little bit about kind of what's happening politically and really domestically inside Belarus. So since that crackdown, kind of what's been happening domestically and some of the more political background inside Belarus? Sure. Well, thanks for having me back. And it's great to be with Brian on this. Um, keep in mind, we're talking about a leader who was elected president in 1994, uh, but has been in power ever since, amended the constitution soon after he came to power and has run a, a dictatorship essentially in Belarus ever since, has rigged past elections, has cracked down on the opposition, has been sanctioned by the West numerous times. And what happened last August was the worst we have seen by far, but, but not unusual. It, it certainly was not an exception. And so what happened last August was there was a, a presidential election. A number of candidates had been disqualified. The wife of one, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, ran in her husband's place. And most observers agree she won and won by a significant margin. Lukashenko, however, in the Central Election Commission claimed that Lukashenko won by 80%. Um, and that precipitated massive, unprecedented protests in Belarus against this stolen election and his ongoing crazy dictatorial rule. And so we saw these demonstrations continue, but then we saw a brutal crackdown by Belarus authorities, Lukashenko ordering his KGB, and they are still called KGB, thugs out into the streets and special forces to put down these protests. And we have seen a, a really dire situation unfold over the past year plus. And so a number of, of activists have been forced to flee. A number of ordinary citizens have been forced to flee. Sikhanovskaya herself was forced out of the country uh, the evening of the election. And so we have seen, I think, a real ugly situation unfold on the European continent. And the West has responded with a series of sanctions, but so far has not done enough. And we've also seen Lukashenko engage 
and even more reckless behavior where he forced down a commercial airliner, Ryanair, in May in order to arrest a, a Belarusian a journalist who was on board, Ramon Protasevich. Um, there was a, a murder. I think it's clear it was a murder of a Belarus activist in Ukraine who was found hanging by a tree. Um, and so this is not just happening inside the borders. It's extending beyond part of this transnational repression that Freedom House and others have talked about. And so it's a threat not only to the people of Belarus, but to many beyond. I want to put these two pieces together. So, I mean, Brian, you're talking a lot about kind of this slow, gradual annexation. David, kind of obviously the, the good summary of where the regime is and some of the heinous actions it's undertaken to try to maintain power. Um, how how is Russia viewing what's happening in Belarus? You know, we what 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 do you think um, its goals are? What does it want to see in Belarus? You know, there's a lot of folks who've talked about or raised the question of whether Moscow is losing its patience with Lukashenko, whether they see him as a liability. Um, but on the other hand, kind of not wanting to overplay their hand. Some of the, the lessons from Ukraine may be that if you come down too hard, that you actually alienate uh, and push the citizens mm. of that country further away from Moscow. And so it seems maybe they need to thread the needle of maintaining this pliant um, state on its borders, mm -hmm. but without acting so strongly that they risk pushing Belarus away. And so I, I don't know if that's how you see the picture, but maybe you can each talk to what you see as Russia's motivations, its goals and objectives in its relationship with Belarus. I think, I think that the, the Kremlin sees this as an opportunity. Um, prior to August 2020, Belarus was kind of in this very ambiguous place. Right. Um, I likened it to Cold War era Romania. Right. It was a dictatorship run by a brutal autocrat, but it wasn't always completely in Moscow's camp. It was playing games elsewhere. It was playing games with the West. Remember, Secretary Pompeo went to Belarus um, in, 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 um, in early 2020. So so it was in this strategically ambiguous place, which kind of suited everybody. Right. The West wasn't getting everything it wanted. Of course, they didn't like Lukashenko's human rights record or record on democracy, but he was keeping the Russians out. And so there was enough that we're getting enough of what we want. Russia wasn't getting everything it wanted because Lukashenko is like, quite frankly, a pain, a, a problematic ally to say the, to say the least in a mercurial one. So they weren't getting, but they, but they were getting enough. Belarus wasn't Ukraine. It wasn't going completely to the West. So, but what, 20, what, what happened in 2020 is it changed the equation for everybody. Um, and now suddenly Russia sees opportunity here. Lukashenko is isolated. The West wants nothing to do with him for very good reason. The illusion that some of us in the West harbored, and I, I myself was a bit guilty of this. I thought we could play this game geopolitically. Um, I testified before the Helsinki Commission to that effect in November of 2019. Um, and, but, but so, so 2020 threw those illusions off from the West, and Lukashenko became completely isolated, and this created an opportunity for Moscow. And Moscow is seizing this opportunity. But I have to say, for, for I mean, Russia is often very clumsy in the former Soviet space. And I think they have not been clumsy with Belarus right now. They're playing this very, very slowly, very carefully. And like I said, this, this soft annexation is, is, is an opportunity. And there is very, very, very little that we can do to stop it. 
And that's, that's what's frightening. Andrea, back to your other comment of kind of bringing these two things together, the repression at home that David talked about and the soft annexation by Russia that I was talking about. These two are two sides of the same coin, effectively. I mean, I wrote last week for the Atlantic Council that the, the, the new Iron Curtain in Europe runs along the Belarusian, Lithuanian, and Polish border, basically. And this is, the, this is the new Iron Curtain. This is a normative struggle, like the Cold War, and this is the new front. So I think this is, this is the struggle between kleptocratic autocracy and, and, and liberal democracy, and that's where the fault line is. So that's what I would say would, would bring the two things together. Uh, but I, I think, to go back to your original question, I think the Kremlin sees this as an opportunity. They're moving very slowly and carefully. Putin and Lukashenko hate each other. This is well known, a well-known fact. Um, Putin would love to have a more pliant, obedient uh, uh, client in, in, in Minsk. But this is a case of the devil you know. I think Moscow is a little bit worried that they couldn't, they couldn't fully handle the, the uh, control, the, the transition. And I think they are, they're basically getting their ducks in a row to make sure that they, when they want to dispose of him, it'll be when there is no doubt that it'll be a successful operation. But I'd be curious to hear what David thinks about that. Yeah, David, over to you. Do you see things similarly, differently? Uh, I'm largely in agreement with Brian, but I, I do think that Belarus and more specifically Lukashenko uh, are, a, are a headache for Moscow. Um, they, the Lukashenko and Putin met for the fifth time this year, last week, and they fell short of uh, announcing a, the finalization of the Union Treaty that they had a, a first announced uh, when Yeltsin was still a president of Russia in 1999. And this, this, these negotiations have been dragging on for a long, long time. Lukashenko had been an earlier break on this. Now I'm not sure whether Putin is applying the brakes uh, on this a yes. little bit, yes. because he may not want the formal full responsibility of dealing with almost 10 million people who live in the country. It's now dropping as more people flee. And, and so there, there were a number, I think 28 agreements that were signed on a whole range of issues um, but it did fall short of, of completing the union treaty between the two. Lukashenko doesn't want to be a junior partner in the relationship. Um, Putin, uh, Brian is absolutely right. Putin can't stand and, and doesn't respect Lukashenko. Uh, he thinks he's a buffoon. Um, and, and that this is one of the rare times I'd agree with Putin. <laughs> but um, in, in this case, I think that um, they, they don't know an alternative to Lukashenko. Putin does not like regime change, particularly driven by popular protests. Yes. And so they're kind of stuck with what they have. And yes, it's an opportunity. And I think Brian's right that there is this creeping annexation going on. But I also think that, boy, they kind of wish they they were... Uh, uh, they didn't have this problem that they had to deal with. They have enough problems at home as it is right now. Well, I would, if I may, I, I would add something to that. I think they're laying the groundwork so so they could get rid of Lukashenko when it's really a sure thing. Um, and this is not just this military footprint I'm talking about, the economic footprint, you know, get, seizing the commanding heights of the of the Belarusian economy, but they're also putting the places in the, the pieces of the puzzle in politically. Um, we all know that Putin has been pushing Lukashenko to do this so-called constitutional reform, which would create a so-called parliamentary republic. What this is effectively doing is transferring a lot of the powers of the presidency to the parliament. But Russia is also putting, and there was some, some leaked documents that, that appeared in the, in, in, in the Russian media about this, where, where the, the Kremlin is putting the pieces in place in terms of media assets, political parties, and movements, so they will be in position to basically dominate that parliament if and when this so-called constitutional reform happens. So I think Russia is playing a very, very, very long game here. 
And I think we have to be cognizant of that because this has enormous security implications for our allies in, in, in Lithuania, Latvia, and Poland, all of which border Belarus and are gonna be staring down the face of Russian military power before we know it when this frog finally boils in the water. I would add a good news side of this too though. Um, as the regime in Minsk is moving close, you know, um, under, under Moscow's grip, the society is Western, is, 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 is changing. It's, it's becoming more open to the West. There's been some public opinion polling that I've been looking at that's been really, really interesting. Um, for example, when asked to identify the period in Belarusian history that you think should be the model for, 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 for present-day Belarus, the top, the, the, the top examples are the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and the brief-lived 1918 Belarus Republic, which was, you know, had, had barely a year of independence before being reabsorbed into the Soviet Union, but way low on the list, you know, down in single digits are the times when Belarus was dominated by Russia. The Russian empire and the Soviet Union is bringing up the rear. So it is more when Belarus was integrated with Europe that is inspiring the people. I think this is something we could work on. We have to play in the West a long game too. Um, I think in the short term, this is gonna be a security nightmare. But in the long term, if we see the society continue to change in this direction, well, this could pay, pay dividends in the long run. And I think that's right now the only game the West can play. Keep jumping in, but Jim, I'm going to go one more time because I think that was such an interesting point that you just made, Brian, which is that a, a growing disconnect. I mean, you know, if it could grow any further, but between the regime and the people and that the mm -hmm. society is changing and the regime is moving in the exact opposite direction, trying to crack down, limit freedom, all of the brutal repression it's going. How sustainable is that situation? I mean, that's, that's, and I know it's the million dollar question with authoritarian regimes. What is it going to be that finally you know, destabilizes the regime and, and leads to, to a leader to, to a change in leadership. But I mean, really, the, when you describe it that way, just the contrast between the direction the, the regime is traveling and the way the society is traveling is remarkable. And so just how, like, how sustainable is this? I mean, again, this is an educated guess, but I think it's very sustainable because where we see this happening is among young people and the young people of the future. So, I mean, your, 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 your Belarusian, you know, the Belarusian equivalent of millennials, like the Russian equivalent of millennials and the Belarusian equivalent of, of, of Gen Z are tired of these dictators. I mean, think about it. By the time I was 20, I, how many presidents had I seen in my life? I'd seen Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter and Reagan by the time I hit 20. Well, if you're Belarusian and you're hitting 20, you've seen exactly one and you got to be tired of that. Um, so, so, so I think this is sustainable in this sense. Now, I don't want to over, over, uh, but I guess Brian, what I mean is sustainable for the regime. Like how long can they hang on as their, as the, the uh, gap between the, so get, I get like sustainable and the the youth have this vision for what they want Belarus to be, but for the regime, how can they hang on when that gulf is just widening between the leaders and the govern, you know, the, the, the people. I mean, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to put a, you know, an exact date on it, but I mean, the, the, this, um, these regimes don't traditionally don't just rely on repression. They rely on a combination of repression, co-optation and passive acquiescence. And they are losing the passive acquiescence piece. They are losing the co-optation piece. So all they got is repression. And once all you got is repression, then the clock is ticking. Um, that's, that, that's what I'd say about this. And this is why I say this is the long game the West has to play. I don't know how long a game this long game is going to have to be. In the short term, I do think we'd have to take steps 
to shore up the security of our allies on NATO's eastern flank, because this is, again, I can't emphasize this enough. I see this as the single most important qualitative security change in the equation on NATO's eastern flank since the Russian annexation of Crimea. And we got to respond to that at the same time. And, you know, this is the United States of America. We can chew gum and walk at the same time. <laughs> we we, we got to play this long game with the Belarusian civil society and, and, and make forge those links that are going to pay off in the long run. David, anything you want to chime in there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one element Brian left out was the Russian support for Lukashenko. Without that, he would have been yeah. gone by now. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and so I think as long as Putin and his regime continue to prop up Lukashenko, and it looks like even though they didn't finalize a union state last week, they are propping him up, including with energy subsidies continuing. Um, that I think Lukashenko can last for a while. However, calculations in the Kremlin also have to factor in if we continue to put, support him and prop him up, are we going to lose the people of Belarus? Now, sometimes they don't care about that. Sometimes they also can't make those calculations. If, they, if you look at what happened in Ukraine, Putin uh, turned Ukrainians into pro-NATO uh, as a result of his invasion. So the Kremlin doesn't always have the best calculators uh, as it makes these decisions. But I, I do think that at some point they have to recognize that more and more people inside Belarus will come to the conclusion, it, had it not been for Putin's support, we would have been freed of this, of this uh, leader. And so I think, I think there, there is something going on where Russia might decide, again, even though Putin hates regime change, that uh, maybe, maybe keeping him in power is not the best thing. Lukashenko is just stark raving mad. Uh, John Oliver, if, if people haven't seen it, did a fantastic clip on him uh, the other day, and ridiculing him is a good way forward. Um, but uh, it, it really, it, it's a dire situation, though, for the people living there, and also for the people who have had to flee who still aren't safe for him. And it's also a real danger for the neighboring states, as Lukashenko has weaponized migrants by sending them across the border, in particular to Lithuania, but also to Poland and Latvia. I would also add to that, David, he's he's also threatening to disrupt supply chains between Europe and Asia, some of which go through Belarus, which is um, it's, it's something to be concerned about. Uh, just to just to jump in, thank you all so much for uh, not only being here, but just really making such a compelling case as if we need to have one. But you have certainly laid it out. But let me ask you, uh, you know, uh, we've over the past month, it's been a pretty agonizing with the uh, 9-11, 20th anniversary with Kabul's collapse and the chaotic uh, chaotic evacuation, and which has sparked, certainly within the Beltway, um, a kind of a reappraisal of uh, America's role in the world, if you will, and American foreign policy and mistakes that we've been made making, certainly since 9-11. Uh, a lot of academics are assaulting um, even the B George H.W. Bush and the Clinton administration for enlarging NATO and, and all of these things. And so if you get outside the Beltway and you talk to people, uh, you know, if they're paying attention to politics at all, it's you get this, uh, this crazy melange of, uh, of uh, worry about the insurrection, uh, worry about uh, you know, uh, and support for Trump and then the anti, I mean, we know the chaos that this country is in right now, certainly outside the Beltway. Um, no one's talking about Belarus. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even in the Beltway, within the Beltway, even within the White House, I don't think there's a lot of talk about Belarus either. 
Um, and as you as we look forward to the long game, as we look forward to potentially uh, putting more U.S. force posture and in, or increasing strengthening U.S. force posture in Europe or getting NATO to do more things, it's going to call for the United States to get out there uh, and to lead the alliance and to lead the American people and saying we've got to do something and. Um, you know, Brian, you said this is the greatest threat and security problem that we've got since the Russians going into Ukraine in terms of Europe. Uh, so so our, our focus on China aside, mm -hmm. just what I laid out is a tall order for this administration to do uh, at a time like this when the administration is focused on COVID, it's focused on the Hill, it's got midterms and the presidential elections coming up. It's got the, I mean, there's so many things this administration is focusing on. Uh, I, just, I just wonder, how do you make the case just to the administration that they have got to do some things um, that, are, that are not being demanded by the American people? Uh, there's not a huge fire going on within Europe that's all over CNN, tanks crossing of the border and things that would compel the US to take action. Belarus, who make the case why the American people should care about Belarus, make the case that you would make to Biden and particularly Jake Sullivan, that he's gotta pay attention to this. How do you make that case? I'd say, look at the map. Um, look where Belarus is on the map. That's the first place I would start. Um, Every single war game scenario that I've seen for war breaking out in Europe begins with Belarus. And this does, this, it, these are war games that are done on the Russian side. And these are war games that have been done on the Western side. At least everyone that I've looked at. Now, of course, I haven't looked at all of them. Um, but there, but there, but, but Belarus is a linchpin of conflict in Europe. Um, and this has historically been true. Every, you know, every invasion of Europe, went, went, you know, either way went through Belarus one way or the other. Um, so this is a strategically vital piece of real estate. Um, and that, that, that's the first case I would make. The second case is it is on the front lines of this normative struggle that I talked about before between kind of Western liberal democracy and uh, post-Soviet kleptocratic authoritarianism, if you will. Um, and, and so I, that, that's the second case I would make. Um, as far as the, you know, the focus on China and the bandwidth problem, I mean, again, I said it before, this is the United States. We can chew gum and walk at the same time, I hope, I think. And I think we can focus, we don't have, it isn't China or, you know, uh, or the former Soviet space. It's got to be both. Um, this problem with, with, with Russia, this normative struggle we're facing with, with, with its kleptocratic authoritarianism in Russia is not going to go away. It is not going to be parked so the United States can focus on China. It's not, Putin's not interested in that. Um, Russia, I, I heard the, 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 the desire was to turn Russia from an unpredictable adversary to a predictable adversary. Guess what? Putin's not interested in being a predictable adversary. His unpredictability, his, his, his ability to generate chaos is his asymmetrical advantage. And he's not gonna give that up. So we, 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 we may not be interested in Russia and Belarus, but guess what? Russia and Belarus is interested in us and it's interested in our allies. And if, and if, this, if it gets to this place, you know, where it's a, you're, you're on CNN tanks going across the border, well, that's, that's too late. We gotta see the signs before they happen. And I'm seeing signs now that are really, really worrying me. Jim, Jim let, me, let me offer a, a sort of a lofty reason and then two more concrete ones. Uh, the lofty is about the vision of a Europe whole free and at peace. Yep. And obviously that is not possible as long as Belarus or any other country on the continent is going in the wrong direction. And Belarus has been going in the wrong direction for many, many years. The people of Belarus are not asking us to fight their fight for them. 
what they are asking us to do is to not enable their dictator to stay in power. And so I think we have an obligation to do so. As Brian said, it's true to our norms and principles and values, um, and it's just the right thing to do it. It will enhance stability and security on the European continent where there has been far too much bloodshed over many years. The, the two more concrete ones are, imagine if you had been a passenger on that Ryanair flight from Athens mm -hmm. scheduled to go to Vilnius and the pilots didn't go down and land in Minsk. What would, I don't think the MiG uh, jet fighter would have shot it down, but I wouldn't want to have been the passenger taking that chance. And so if you are sitting next to a Belarus activist and you, I realize now flights over Belarus are much more limited, but if you had been and Lukashenko wanted to go after that activist sitting next to you, you could be in great danger. The other thing is uh, Vital Shishov, who, the, the activist who was found uh, hanged in a, in a tree, um, that happened in Ukraine. And so the possibility of seeing more of this kind of nasty, ugly repression, essentially assassinations, assassin squads sent out, um, could happen in Ukraine, it could happen in Lithuania, it could happen anywhere. And so uh, we, we need to be much more aware that these problems don't stay within the borders of these countries. And the way these regimes treat their own people is indicative of how they'll behave in foreign policy. And that's why we have all the problems we do, not just with the Lukashenkos who have limited means and what they can do, uh, but with the likes of, of Putin and Xi and others. And the migrants too. I mean, clearly it's not staying inside of Belarus's border, absolutely. right? They're weaponizing migrants and sending them over the border to Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And, and here, I, I think we have done something which is to urge the Iraqi government and also the Turks to cut down on these flights going to Minsk yeah. um, because it is posing a huge problem. And, it, and it's, it's terrible ex exploitation of these migrants yeah. who are in rather desperate straits themselves but it's causing tremendous problems for small countries like Lithuania and Latvia, but even bigger countries like Poland. And it, it, absolutely, it is the weaponization of migrants with Russian complicity, by the way. This is not just Lukashenko doing yeah. this on his own. Putin is very much supporting this. And, and so for people who think we can get along with Putin, they should wake up to see what he's doing with these, with these people. Putin's used these very same tactics against Europe in the past, uh, weaponizing migrants and sending them into Europe. Well, let me let me let me say first. Uh, make no mistake, I I am part of this choir. I am just as fired up about this as you all. But, but I'm sobered by this going going lofty, David, as you were saying, as you started off on your intervention, going to an even loftier plane here. Um, do you think uh, the blob, if you will, uh, the younger blob, or uh, people outside the Beltway who pay attention to this kind of thing? You know, having Biden at a press conference just a month after Kabul uh, and just a month after the, all of these reappraisals about the U.S. intervening all over the world, the global war on terrorism, and there's such a fatigue now and such a questioning now, again, among those who follow this kind of thing. Do you, do you really think that Biden could be in a press conference and they ask him about Belarus and he, he says, I'm going to announce a new U.S. initiative in Europe where we're going to have to face uh, the Russians and what they're, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if a response would come back at him from, a, from other quarters in the United States that would be saying, those days are over. We are not going to launch ourselves at every problem, whether it's terrorism or not, 
we're not going to launch ourselves the way we have done, certainly since the end of the Cold War, um, to mixed results. And here, we, Mr. President, you're announcing uh, a, a new initiative uh, calling for lots of money to be spent and forces to be moved around and efforts at NATO uh, about a problem in Europe. And, and, and you're using an old playbook, Mr. President, that has that is no longer uh, appropriate. And we, the new generation or whatever this will be coming from, uh, we just feel we've got to come up with a new approach in terms of foreign policy, a new way to handle problems like this that's not always focused on the military. You're ringing the alarm bell that we've got a military threat and we believe we've got to take a new, uh, a new path. It, what, what would you say about that? You know, coming out of the Quincy Institute or others who have been writing quite, uh, uh, persuasively that we've we need to learn since uh, the, the our problems since the end of the Cold War and not keep doing the same thing over and over again. What would you say? Well, Jim, that's a good way of framing it because this is the kind of these are the kind of things we have to face constantly. Um, uh, first of all, I would say that the formula that that, that that President Biden would be proposing and that would be the formula that worked in the Cold War in Europe. It kept the peace in Europe during the Cold War. There was not kinetic conflict in Europe during the Cold War. So that's the first that's the first point I would make. The second point I would make is that we are treaty bound to protect in, in the event of an attack on Lithuania, Latvia, or Poland, all of which border Belarus, we are treaty bound to get in there. So why not deter that from happening by putting troops in Europe? I think that is a lot, a lot less costly than than than, than out and out war. Um, I think it would actually prevent war. The last thing, actually, the, despite Putin's bluster, the last thing he wants is a kinetic conflict with U.S. or NATO troops, right? Um, so that's that that's that's the second thing. And third, I would say it is a mistake to conflate things like the excesses of the global war on terror with the enlargement of NATO. Um, the, the, the latter, I think, was a correct policy. The former, I think, was, was, went, was misguided at times. So I think it's a mistake to conflate these things. Um, they, are not part, they are not part and parcel of the same, of the same whole. I, I would say they're, they are different, but, but primarily I would say we are, we we are treaty-bound. Unless we want to go back on our word as a country, according to you know, Article 5 of the NATO treaty is binding, right? Um, if there is a kinetic attack on any of the uh, any of our our allies, whether they border Belarus or not, we are we are treaty bound to get into it, and we want to stop that from happening. And the best way to stop that from happening is to put a put a credible deterrent in place. Let me just say, no no one's talking about sending troops to Belarus. No one's talking yeah, about exactly. sending troops to Ukraine to fight the war. Exactly. In Ukraine, though there are trainers in Ukraine to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. Um, and no one wants a conflict, a military conflict with, with Russia, as Brian said. Um, but at the same time, um, President Biden met with Svetlana Sikhanovskaya. It took uh, the second trip to Washington for her. She was in the States and had to come back for a meeting with her, with, with the president. Um, and I think that sent a very important signal and was consistent with the emphasis the president has has voiced about the importance of democracy and human right, rights being central to US foreign policy. Now, I do think, Jim, that, that the withdrawal from Afghanistan has done a lot of damage to that cause. Um, I think people in this region we're talking about, Ukrainians, Georgians, Belarusians, Moldovans, are very nervous about the sustainability of the US commitment in this region. Um, but um, if the president is going to hold a summit for democracy, then he should invite Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya to represent the people of Belarus. She is the leader of the democratic forces there, after all, and she won last year's election. 
that would send a strong signal of support to the people of Belarus. It would also send a signal to Lukashenko and Putin as well. And I think it would be consistent with what the president has said as a priority. So th this is going to be a big test, I think, for him to see whether he uh, will follow up on his rhetoric earlier in the administration. And, and I hope he can make the case uh, why this is important. Again, it's on the European continent um, where transatlantic relations are critical, but it's hard to uh, fulfill the vision of a Europe hold free and at peace as long as there's a country like Belarus with Lukashenko running it. I know Brian's going to jump in, but also to say, though, that meeting between Biden and Tishkanovskaya almost didn't happen. Right. Exactly. And then, like that was it was hard to <laughs> yeah. get that to happen. And it took a lot of mobilization for people pushing for that to happen. So that's concerning. And it's back to po Jim's point that the White House isn't really focused on this. So and, and that's where I wanted to kind of dip, jump in, make just a real short comment is, do you all think, based on what you all just said, how hard it was for her to get a meeting, uh, how much pressure had to go in? Is the do you think the NSC staff who are the ones that are going to have to generate it? We've been talking about Biden himself as a person, but it's the people around Biden that are critical in this. Do you think the people around Biden who are in charge of this kind of thing on the NSC staff and the higher levels of state and defense, maybe the intel community, or is their heart in it? I mean, in terms of Belarus, in terms of the signals and the test, David, that you talked about. Do you think that their heart is in it? Do they have the stomach for this or are they just wishing this would go away and uh, and and are frustrated and a little annoyed when people keep raising Belarus? Um, is their heart in it? My, my sense, Jim, is that Jake Sullivan thought that his meeting with Sikhanovsky was enough. Um, and, and so he did not initially recommend that the president meet with her. And that was, a, a, I think, a serious mistake on his part. She has met, Sikhanovsky has met with Merkel, with Macron, with, with Johnson, every leader in Europe, she's traveled the continent. Um, and for the president of the United States to have snubbed her would have reflected not only badly on the president, it would have reflected very badly on the NSC. Um, so they did fix it. And, and Andrea is absolutely right that it took a second bite at the apple to get that fixed. But it, at the same time, it, it isn't a problem just at the NSC. At the State Department, as you know, there still is no Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasian Affairs, Karen Donfried, whom I hope will get uh, confirmed very quickly. That, that bureau has been without a confirmed person going back into the Trump administration. And just recently, the Deputy Assistant Secretary that has even closer responsibility for Belarus, uh, George Kent, has rotated out of his position as a new person. Uh, who's there, who doesn't have that much familiarity with this region, um, who's taken over his, George's portfolio. So I, I am worried. Toria Newland, the undersecretary um, for policy, knows this region very well. Um, she's got a lot on her plate because she is no longer just the assistant secretary for Europe, Eurasia affairs. So it's a problem across the government. There, there's not, um, in your old shop, Jim, there's not the Assistant Secretary for International Security Affairs uh, nom uh, nominated, yes, Celeste Wallander, but not yet confirmed. Um, so a lot of positions at this point, mid-September, have not been filled. And it isn't just a problem on the Hill. But let me just quickly add one other thing mentioning the Hill. There has been strong 
bipartisan support for the democracy forces in Belarus on the Hill. And I think that's important too. The Hill is, as we all know, can act as an important catalyst for administration action on various foreign policy challenges. And it, as I say, it's, it's from Chris Smith to Ben Cardin, you name it, um, on the Hill. She had a lot of good meetings up there with Senator Menendez and others. And, and so if the administration doesn't show a lot of interest, um, there's an opportunity to get the Hill more involved and to push the administration. Other little, what I wanna insert in our last couple of minutes too, it, obviously there's the US and what it can do and its interest in this problem set, but what about Europe, right? So I, I, we haven't talked at all really about what Europeans are doing to address this. Um, what, how The extent of coordination that you're all sensing is happening or not happening on the Belarus. So describe a little bit about what, you know, how this looks from, if you can, from Europeans perspectives. I know you're obviously both here in Washington DC, but what do you pick up in terms of how Europe is thinking about this problem and, and what they're willing to do to address it? Including NATO. I've only been in, in Washington for three years and was living in Europe before that. And one thing you do notice in Europe, and it's it's quite obvious and intuitive, but the, the, the farther east you get, the more people are concerned with this problem. And the farther west you get, the less concerned they are with this, this problem. And I think we should be listening to our friends and allies in the Baltic states and in Poland, because they know this problem better than we know it. They know it better than the West, the, the Europeans farther to the West, and they've been dealing with it and coming up with creative ways to deal with it. Um, whether we're talking about you know, strategic corruption or, or, or disinformation or, or, or what have you, the Lithuanians and the Estonians are, are, are industry leaders in this. And I think we need to be listening to them first and foremost about this. Um, that's that's the, the first thing I say. I'd, the second thing I say, we have a lot of tools in our toolbox that we can use. That We, we don't have to have this all-out military commitment that, 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 Jim, you seem to be saying as you were, I seem to be caricaturing the, the opposition position on this. It, it, we're talking about putting some extra troops in the frontline states to act as a deterrent and a tripwire. That's what we're talking about. And those countries are screaming for those troops. Um, they want American boots on the ground. Um, that, that's number one. Number two is something we haven't talked about here is sanctions. Um, David, you gave what I consider to be fantastic testimony on the Hill about this back in the springtime, where you were calling for the, the, the expanded sanctions against Lukashenko's Russian enablers, right? Um, the Russian oligarchs that are effectively uh, propping up and bankrolling the Lukashenko regime. We have it in our power to, to, to sanction them. Um, and some of them we have sanctioned. Um, we, we, we've sanctioned Gutsiriev, which is, was a step in the right direction. I'd like to see some more sanctions. I'd like to see German Greff, but I don't think that's going to happen. But, uh, but I think we can, people like us need to be pushing for it. So we have a lot of tools in our toolbox here. Um, it's, it's not going to be easy, but shit, if you want an easy job, you should go sell shoes, I guess. <laughs> Well, I, I'm in Miami, so I'm even further removed from Washington these days. Um, but uh, just to reinforce Brian's point, that I really want to salute, and I've done this before, and, and others have too, I'm not alone in this, salute the Lithuanians for what they have done. They have really taken on an enormous challenge, uh, providing safe haven for lots of people from not just Belarus, but from other countries as well. But Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya has her headquarters uh, in Vilnius, and the Lithuanians have come under attack. By the way, they've also come under attack from the Chinese as a result of mm -hmm. opening a Taiwan office there. Um, they need our full support, and I believe Foreign Minister Landsberg is in Washington this week, uh, or will be soon, and so I hope that the administration shows him all due respect. 
Um, and there were some good statements from um, Secretary of State Blinken too, right, supporting Lithuania, which has been absent, I think, from the European side. But it has. There have been some meetings about the the weaponization of migrants and the burden it has uh, opposed to the, to the Lithuanians, but not enough, frankly. Um, and and so I, I, Brian's absolutely right that the the those four states, the, the three Baltic states and Poland, I think are ones to listen to more carefully and closely. Um, I know we have some challenges with Poland and what's happening domestically, but on, on foreign policy, they're spot on. And, and so I do think that that we we need to listen to them more. Um, Jim, you asked about NATO too. And um, uh, I think there is less of an obvious role for NATO on, on this situation but a beefing up of forces in NATO member states that are on the front line there, that I think is, is critically important, just so that nobody gets any crazy ideas in the Kremlin. This has been amazing. This was really a, a really excellent uh, conversation. We're pretty much at the end of time. Um, so I wanna thank both of you for doing this. Um, I mean, you got us up to speed on what has happened in the last year. We covered the Kremlin perspective, the European perspective, the US perspective, big picture questions. Um, yeah, I thought this was a really fantastic discussion and I'm really thankful to both of you for your willingness to join us. Um, and I, I will have to have you both back, uh, I don't know, in a couple of months and we'll see if we've moved any closer to the integration seat. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be a lot happening. A lot does feel like it's in flux. And so I think we'll have a lot to catch up on in the coming months and, and hopefully we can do it again. So thank and, you. and a salute to the people of Belarus who yes. remain determined yeah. to have yes. a better future. So Absolutely. Thanks, and, thanks and, and, and yeah, and to keep this issue in the, in the mainstream. I mean, I think it's Absolutely. really important to continue to highlight it. We've been, um, you know, we should have had, it shouldn't have been a year since our last episode on Belarus. And so we will, we will address that. And, you know, right. just to add to that, I think our job, uh, like uh, what you all were talking about, putting pressure on the NSC to meet, the, you know, the opposition leader, all, I think that's our job is we've got to keep beating the drum because the administration is distracted by all kinds of things, including their, their own view of the world, which doesn't really include a lot of Europe to my mind. So it really is us to be the conscience uh, here on the outside and beat the drum and put pressure and, uh, and not, let them get, not let them get away with dismissing Russia, dismissing Belarus, dismissing Europe. We've got to beat the drum. This was great. And um, thanks again for doing it.